Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Rob Heaton for New Books and Biblical Studies, where I focus on new and exciting scholarship in New Testament and early Christian studies, uh, the orbit of my own PhD. I'm delighted to be talking today with uh, Claire Rothschild about her recent uh, very robust volume on a complicated manuscript that is often deemed crucial for triangulating the early appearance in Christian history of a canonical impulse, one that uh, you know eventuates in what we call the New Testament. And we'll get to all the complications involved with this uh, so-called Muratorian fragment, but first let me introduce my guest. Claire Rothschild earned her PhD from the University of Chicago in 2003 and is professor of scripture studies at Lewis University. Her research interests range uh, throughout the textual landscape of the New Testament and other early Christian texts as well, from Luke-Acts to Pauline texts and Hebrews and uh, from the Apostolic Fathers to the Muratorian fragment. Her current research focuses on the Epistle of Barnabas, on which she is preparing a commentary for the Hermeneus series with Fortress, uh, sorry, Fortress Press. Uh, she serves as general editor for Early Christianity, as well as the uh, Society of Biblical Literature series Writings from the Greco-Roman World. In her spare time, which is a concept that I will have to inquire about off air, uh, given her prolific uh, research and publication schedule, she enjoys yoga and playing cello in various small orchestras and ensembles. On top of all this, uh, Claire is joining us today from her home base in Chicago to uh, discuss the publication of the Muratorian Fragment with the subtitle Text Translation Commentary, published by Moore Zebeck. Uh, Claire, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the New Books Network. Thanks for having me. Yeah, wonderful. Uh, So this was my second time reading through uh, this book of yours, and I just uh, have to say at the outset how thorough and robust and excellent it is. You leave no uh, no stone left unturned, so to speak, and uh, down to discussing the marginalia in this Muratorian Codex. But I also noticed on the back cover that either you or your publisher wrote this, that the uh, Muratorian fragment is a lightning rod in biblical studies. So I have to ask, did it feel like you were playing with lightning uh, in the research and writing process here? Yeah, very much so. Along the way, uh, this journey, I received much pushback, both publicly and privately. (laughs) Um, Since the publication of my book, Jeff Hahnemann, who we'll talk about later, probably published a big, important book on the Muratorian Fragment um, some years ago. This uh, distinguished scholar now teases me that the bullseye is now on my back. (laughs) So questions that I attempted to raise incited unfriendly indignation on the part of some colleagues, but also I received encouragement from others. Oh, very good. Yeah, I believe it that the bullseye has come to you now. You know, all the scholars who defend a second century Muratorian fragment, uh, you know, now have a place to turn their ire. But uh, your book uh, really has a neutral presentation of the evidence related to the Muratorian fragment to start with, until you get to your own conclusions about the, fra- the fragments, you know, approximate date and provenance. So um, attentive readers who know your history of publication on the Muratorian fragment can sort of see the direction of travel, perhaps, uh, in your consideration of the evidence in the a commentary on the fragment. But broadly speaking, this is how we'll separate the interview into two parts. First, uh, allowing our listeners who are not necessarily specialists in the fragment to understand its significance, 
And then we transition to your own argument about its place in early Christian history. So starting in a very basic place here for, as I said, those listeners who might not have uh, familiarity with the fragment. What is this thing that we call the Muratorian fragment? Uh, what is that adjective Muratorian doing at the front of it? Um, uh, how does that relate to its you know, discovery, publication, what it contains, and why has this ultimately been deemed so significant uh, by scholars of uh, early Christianity? And I realize that's like seven questions in one. <laughs> no problem. I'm really glad, um, very glad for the question to begin at the basic level, because sometimes there are questions that people have but are afraid to ask. The Muratorian Fragment enumerates an ordering of scriptural books that has been considered virtually since its publication, an ordering um, uh, by the, sorry, by uh, since its publication by the distinguished 18th century Italian historian Ludovico Muratori, hence Muratorian, mm -hmm. in uh, 1740. It's been considered an antecedent of canon lists, hmm. a type otherwise known from only fourth century examples. Mm -hmm. So fragmentary, or as we say, acephalous, um, owing to the loss of the preceding folio, it begins mid-sentence with the tale of a statement that we think refers to Mark, the evangelist. Mm -hmm. Line two, the gospel according to Luke is specifically named and so forth, proceeding with other canonical and non-canonical books. So we have John, the Acts of the Apostles, the Pauline Epistles in a very unusual order. Mm -hmm. First and Second Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Galatians, First and Second Thessalonians, and Romans. And then Paul's letter to in, letters to individuals, Philemon, Titus, First and Second Timothy. Then letters considered spurious, the Laodiceans and Alexandrians. Then Jude, two Johannine letters. Wisdom, John's Apocalypse, Peter's Apocalypse, and the Shepherd of Hermas. And finally, excluded heretical works. So, and it's not a list, it's more or less a discussion. While the text was hailed in the 19th century for the seemingly indisputable, indisputable evidence it furnished for early stabilization of the New Testament books, interpretation of the fragment has proved intractable and its, significant, its significance ardently controverted. Mm-hmm. Um, so I took an interest in in your admission at, in the acknowledgments that you nearly gave up on this project at some at maybe multiple points ex uh, actually, given the complexity of the project before you, um, and especially the, the uh, you know the difficulty of covering this in such a comprehensive way as you ultimately did. And I'm willing to say candidly here as well that uh, no uh, section of my dissertation and ultimately m the book that I published on the Shepherd of Hermas gave me as many headaches as uh, the Muratorian Fragment. Uh, so uh, what is it about this strange document uh, that makes a comprehensive handling of it such an undertaking? Is it just the fact that you know, uh, scholars have tended not to approach it as uh, in such depth as you uh, finally have? Uh, no. Uh, let me say, to begin with, my initial interests arose out of the attempt to ascertain the reliability of Hebrews, mm. because the idea was that Hebrews was accepted in the East but rejected in the West. But as you may know, Hebrews' Eastern acceptance is based on 46, and I thought that was trustworthy evidence. But the Western projection is based on the Muratorian fragment. And the more I looked at it, the more I wasn't sure if this was, you know, you know the nature of this evidence, the dependability of it. Mm -hmm. um, because the historical critical method requires an understanding of the historical context of the evidence that we summon, I naively <laughs> set out to establish the reliability of the Muratorian fragment. And um, despite this insistence by scholars of varying opinions that the date and provenance were secure, 
previous scholarship it could did not as far as i could tell authentic had not authenticated this text for you know permanently mm-hmm. so it seemed that to understand the full reception of hebrews a thorough investigation of the muratorian fragment was necessary which is where the book comes from mm-hmm. um I'd also like to say congratulations on your new work on the Terminator oh, Permit, and maybe we should actually be doing an interview of, I should be interviewing you about your book. Uh, but um, as for the fragment, the problem is that it crosses so many different boundaries. So it in a proper examination includes somebody who, can, who specializes in the New Testament, early Christianity, and the early church, mm-hmm. also in patristics and late antiquity, mm-hmm. and also in medieval history. Mm-hmm. As I say, that fragment um, uh, has disdain for boundaries. So that is why it's covering all those areas that I think is, this is why many previous studies fall short because they focus on only one of these areas. Mm-hmm. I attempted to do all of them, which is very, you know, was foolhardy. Um, <laughs> and I, but luckily I had, I had some help along the way. Indeed. It, it sort of required a, a polymath type of uh, approach to it. And uh, maybe we can think about uh, talking about the shepherd further on down the line, but uh, we have, I'll sprinkle that in here a little bit as we talk uh, throughout this interview. It's also good to have the background of uh, Hebrews being your sort of entry point into the Muratorian fragment. Um, but um, you, uh, you focus on an issue of genre pretty early on in the book. Uh, you pull in evidence from this codex. So it's important to point out that this Muratorian fragment is one, you know, a few pages, a few leaves in a in a larger uh, codex from uh, perhaps the eighth century. So you consider why it's nestled between uh, the formulae and instructiones of Eucarius, who is a fifth century bishop from uh, Gaul in modern day France. Uh, later in the book, you uh, uh, lay out the comparative material that is actually pretty minuscule to the fragment, and you say that all of our analogs to this come from you know prologue type material from the uh, uh, early medieval period, perhaps, or the late patristic period, however we want to categorize that. But an example would be the Benedictine uh, prologues uh, attached to the monastic rule of St. Benedict, so sixth century or so. Um, I don't want to speak for your thesis in the early part of this book, but I identified something that I'd like to pick on a little bit, um, or uh, uh, amplify perhaps, uh, on page 80, where you say that all too often, the fragment is discussed without an awareness of the oddity of the soul codex that it's found within. Um, so you review the uh, Muratorian Codex and you amplify yourself an overlooked article from 1989 by Mirella Ferrari, an Italian scholar, discussing the features of this codex. So I want to ask you how you would characterize this strange grouping of treatises, sermons, articles of faith, and so on, and how, how you would estimate that the fragment itself relates or doesn't relate to the text surrounding it in this soul codex in which it's found. Yes, thanks for this question. In particular, um, it is one of the contributions that I try to make with this book that's different from previous contributions, uh, is to say, what is the nature of the codex? How does the fragment fit inside the codex? And first, I want to thank and acknowledge, as you just did, um, Professor Morella Ferrari, for her work on the Muratorian Codex. Um, I'm reliant on her work, um, and fortunately, it's excellent. It's written in Italian, and I think for this reason, part partly for this reason, um, scholars on the Muratorian fragment have ignored it. <clears throat> anyway, the Codex contains three major works. They must take up, I try to calculate it, it's, it's, they must take up, I don't know, two-thirds of the te- of the Codex, maybe mm-hmm. even more than that, at least the original Codex, because the original Codex we think was about eight choirs longer than the one that we currently have. Mm-hmm. Anyway, these are the three works in this Codex 
are all epistolary essays. One, two are by Eucarius, as you mentioned, the formulae and the instructiones. And the third is John Chrysostom's letter to Theodore, not to be confused with Clement of Alexandria's letter to Theodore, which is also a topic for another um, <laughs> But um, in a, and an interesting topic. Um, but in the pages in between these three major works, we have what I think is kind of a collection within a collection. Mm. And there is um, a, a, a preponderance for works associated with Ambrose. So whether they're by Ambrose or whether they were attributed to Ambrose at some point in time, I've postulated that the Muratorian fragment is actually a part of that collection within the collection. Mm, okay, interesting. And we'll get to your, um, you know, your specific thesis a little bit later on in the interview with Ambrose or Ambrosiaster. But um, it's important to point out that uh, most scholars who deal with the Muratorian Codex don't actually examine the Codex, and you got that opportunity a couple of times, I believe. Just once, yeah. Just once, just once, but you know, even so, uh, you've uh, reproduced it with your own uh, transcription and translation here in uh, this book. So um, you know, it's worth uh, it's worth looking at this fresh take on the material. But um, previous generations of scholarship, this fragment was typically called something like the Muratorian Canon, as if a canon list is the best way to characterize an odd mix of received books and uh, you know brief elaborations about their contents and authorship. You mentioned how the fragment. Uh, deals with the shepherd of Hermes, Hermes in slight ways, um, bringing up the fraternity legend between Hermes and Pius, um, uh, and you can get into that if you'd like to, but um, the, the fragment's author seemingly intends to be understood as a second century witness to the question of books accepted in and, you know, deemed questionable for inclusion in the New Testament canon. Um, language, I think, for the most part of Muratorian canon has fallen out of vogue, although I still see it pop up in the scholarship from time to time. Um, but I still deem, I still see many who deem the information it transmitted about Hermes and Pius as relevant, not only for the dating and locating of the shepherd in the second century, but also for establishing a widely held position on the fittingness for a canon, uh, it, it, the shepherd's fittingness for canon, applicable to like the whole Christian West uh, at the time in the late second century. Is this a fair reading of the situation in your view? And sort of why do you think the fragment has been, at least since its discovery in the 18th century, uh, been so successful as an authority on the shepherd in the New Testament canon? Well, <laughs> this is a tough question. I'd say the traditions that the Muratorian fragment transmits about Hermas, Pius, and the shepherd are first corroborated in the fourth and fifth century in fourth and fifth century sources. Hmm. And if the tradition and early dating are true, then we have to imagine of the fragment, we have to imagine a histor historical scenarios of non-influence. Hmm. Scenarios in which the Muratorian fragment lay dormant for at least 150 years. We also have to think about motives for falsification. The evidence from Aquileia and the tradition of Pius's Aquilean origins provide an apt setting in the fourth and fifth centuries to consider this material. Um, so in, in your personal judgment, perhaps, um, you know, taking off the uh, detachment that uh, scholar, scholars typically have for the material in, in some cases, do you think the fragment tells us anything reliable about Hermes, Pius, or the shepherd from uh, an early period in which it poses itself as? I don't think it adds much to what we already know. Hmm. So I think that these later sources, uh, what we what we can deduce from the shepherd itself is more reliable than what we get from this fourth fifth century attested legend. Um, although it is interesting to imagine 
um, the shepherd vis-a-vis -vis Aquileia. So I do think that we're going to see connections apart from the shepherd of Hermas that connect the Muratorian fragment to Aquileia and then bringing the shepherd into that milieu is an interesting question. And so that is possibly new, but it's only verified by late sources. So and the shepherd's much earlier. Indeed. And I should say that the fraternity legend that I speak of in the previous question is is basically this idea that we get from the fragment and, as Claire says, from uh, sources in the 4th and 5th century that uh, connect Hermes as the brother, and uh, bi uh, apparently biological brother, of Pius, who is a Roman bishop uh, uh, around the middle of the 2nd century, which seems to contravene uh, the authorial situation going on in the shepherd itself, which points a little bit closer to the beginning of the second century. So it, it seems that Claire and I are sort of on the same page uh, in, in that regard when it comes to the fraternity legend. Um, uh, Claire, you, you point out though that the fragment's authenticity has been debated and its authorship questioned ever since its discovery, although scholars these days generally, or generally assume that it's a genuine piece of evidence from somewhere in the second, uh, half of the second century. Uh, in your book, you talk about this history of scholarship that is often passed over, I guess. So I want to ask you, why was the fragment's authenticity and initial assignment to Gaius of Rome in the second century a matter of skepticism even at the time that it was discovered? And uh, from there, perhaps, could you talk about more recent scholarship, the, the theories of Alfred Sunberg and Jeffrey Hahnemann that shifted the fragment's dating to the fourth century? Yeah, sure. So the initial assignment to Gaius, Presbyter of Rome, which actually Muratori made, but he wasn't the only one to make it. He made it, well, partly based on the comment in Eusebius that Gaius uh, rejected Hebrews. So a 13-letter um, uh, corpus polonum. But anyway, the problem is that Gaius and Pius don't have the same date. So Pius is around one mid fifty, like you said, around mid second century one fifty, and Gaius of Rome is later than that, maybe fifty years, maybe more than that. So third century, and um, so these two don't correspond, which is what was the initial pushback against Muratori's idea. Sunberg explored, um, in particular, lines seventy three to seventy seven of the text, which are devoted to the Shepherd of Hermas on what Sunberg read, or refers to as a plain or literal reading, these lines internally date the text just after 141 to 153, so the Episcopate of Pius. Sunberg argues, however, that the phrase Nuperi made to temporibus nostris, that is very recently in our own times, in line 74, uh, was not intended to be read, read literally. Rather, he said these words imply a division between two incommensurate time periods, one, the short apostolic phase of the church from Jesus' resurrection to roughly the year 100. And second, basically the rest of time. So all the time after that prophetic phase. Since, according to Sunberg, our times can refer to anything after 100, he said it offered no help in dating the fragment's composition. And he thus allowed that other traditions represented in the text, he allowed other uh, traditions represented in the text to date it. So he finally concluded that it was written in the fourth century. Uh, Sundberg found a precedent for this use of the word, uh, of this phrase in Nuperime Temporibus Nostris um, in Irenaeus. The quotation comes from um, uh, against heresies and the quotation is for that, that is the revelation of John, was seen not a very long time ago, but almost in our own generation. 
Generally speaking, Sundberg's periodic, we call it the periodic reading, uh, is rejected by scholars seeking to place the text composition of the second century and embraced by those who prefer to place it in the fourth century. That is, without a really careful, um, without substantive interaction with the exegetical strategy. An exception was the distinguished Everett Ferguson, who agreed that Sundberg's periodic reading is possible, but rejected the conclusion that the fragment is of fourth century Eastern origin. Ferguson also identifies a potential contradiction. It's, I have to read it twice every time I think about it because it's, it's kind of hard to get your head around, but also I'll go slowly. But the contradiction in the Irenaean proof texts, pointing out that when Irenaeus uses the phrase, quote, in our own generation, end quote, its purpose is to place the date of revelation close to his own lifetime. That is, the author is post-apostolic like us. <laughs> if this meaning is applied to the fragments phrase in our times, Quotes. The fragmentist would be describing himself as con the contemporary of Hermonus, which is precisely the point Sundberg seeks to reject through his mm. periodic reading. So it's it Ferguson, Ferguson did an excellent job. Now, as for his student, I mean, uh, yeah, the the, the 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 next scholar who took up this position, Jeff Hahnemann. Jeff de de dedicated a significant part of his scholarly career to developing Sundberg's thesis. In chapter two of his Oxford monograph on the topic, Hahnemann supports and amplifies Sundberg's case by arguing not only that new perime temporibus nostris, line 74, refers to a post-apostolic period, dating which applies to the shepherd only, which is something also Sundberg said, but also that this so-called fraternity legend compounds difficulties because, one, the Shepherd of Hermas is unlikely to have been written when Pius was Bishop of Rome. That is, it's too late. <laughs> Two, Pius and the author of The Shepherd unlikely to have been brothers. Their names, after all, are one's Greek and one's Latin. Right. And number three, the fragment is, is unlikely to have been the contemporary of either one. So whether today one agrees with Sunberg and Hahnemann, they brought studies, in my view, that substantially um, catapulted research on the Muratorian fragment forward, at least in terms of a critical consideration of the text. Right. So they uh, kind of brought the fragment scholarship into the modern age. And for a while, you saw scholars kind of lining up behind either, um, uh, <clears throat> so, excuse me, uh, Sunberg and Hahnemann or, you know, okay. reverting to the previous second century uh, theories. Um, out of all of the issues that we could discuss here at the end of part one of this interview, uh, of this conversation, that is, um, one question of significance I have is about the original language of the fragment. And perhaps listeners didn't know that they were going to, to hear you speak Latin a little bit, but uh, that actually relates to the question that we have here, because the fragment itself is Latin, but there's a question of whether Latin is the original language of this uh, fragment, or if it's a translation of an originally Greek forlaga or previous text underlying it. What's the range of uh, opinions on this question in the scholarship, uh, perhaps not just today, but going back centuries, if you'd like, and uh, what have you ultimately concluded as the best answer to this question on the basis of the Latin before you? Hey, well, I'm going to tell you the, the conclusion before I jump into the details. The conclusion is we're really on the fence about this. It's very mm -hmm. difficult to know, but I'll tell you what's going on, what has gone on, and then what's going on right now. So Muratori does not specify the original language of the fragment, although he complains more than once about the miserable state of the present text. And I'll get to that in a second. He attributes the text to Gaius of Rome, Gaius of Rome, who's preserved for us in Greek hmm. by Eusebius. But Gaius is in Rome, but he's preserved in Greek. All right, so you already have kind of like, okay, we're not sure. Now, Muratori doesn't seem to imagine anything other than the Latin that he has in front of him. 
the earliest retroversion into Greek that I'm aware of was Chevalier Bunsen, who published Lagarde, also known as uh, Bouddhischer's Reconstruction. So as you um, as as you as you will say, um, the 19th century, around the mid um, 1850 or so. Now, there are some odd features of the Latin, and these features need to be brought up to date with our understanding of Vulgate Latin. In a new work that I just published with Jeremy Thompson, we've also recognized there seems to be uh, uh, Greek, I want to say moderated Greek influence on the fragment through fragment-related material in the Euthalian apparatus, which is in Greek. Mm. So this is, I would say, cutting edge. We haven't figured, we haven't like followed up on this um, thoroughly yet, and we should proceed with caution. <laughs> I'll mention that there's a common idiom across ecclesiastical Greek and Latin, which makes a positing a Greek original both easy and difficult to prove. <laughs> the book emphasize, my book emphasizes this skeptical case, perhaps because the fragment makes no echo in Greek texts whatsoever. Interesting. Interesting. So these, are, these are some of the problems. I'll also mention that one of the things that I postulated is that, you know, Muratory says the Latin of the fragment is so abysmal and, you know, these scribes and what were they doing and all of that. <laughs> it's also possible, I've postulated that it was copied from an abbreviated original and the scribe didn't read the abbreviations. So I have a section in my book that's long and boring about um, how that might have been the case. And I think in the, if you take a close look at the um, transcription of the fragment in the codex, you notice some symbols that look like the scribe just gave up trying to um, expand what he saw as um, these when we, these abbreviations that he saw. But anyway, that's also another part of this co interesting conversation, I think. So results are ultimately inconclusive, although you will see some scholars argue vehemently that it, that there was a Greek original underlying it, and not just, you know, centuries ago, but also somewhat recently as well. So uh, hopefully this is a broad introduction to all the difficulties involved with the fragment and where scholarship has been. And from here, we're going to move on to where uh, your scholarship has taken, taken us on uh, the fragment uh, and its uh, provenance. So... Um, I want to uh, focus on a question that you pose, I think is a rhetorical one for your readership, but I'm going to turn it back to you and ask <laughs> uh, at the outset uh, if there's anything that can be said about this. So you say, uh, what can be concluded about a text that has effectively outsmarted the greatest minds ever to apply themselves to the study of church history? And this question appears on page 307 of your book. Uh, or in other words, um, <clears throat> How did you come to focus on the late 4th or early 5th century, this northern town of Aquileia, as being relevant to our understanding of, uh, of the fragment, and the potential of a pseudepigraphon or a, a fake as the best explanation for the fragment's development? Yeah, so I'm grateful for this question also. And I hope that my conclusions, in my conclusions, I've allowed the uh, evidence to lead. <laughs> but... Um, the fragment shows provocative analogs in writers residing in Northern Italy, in particularly Aquileia. And the manuscript itself was at Bovio, which is also you know, not far from Aquileia. It has a number of linguistic and thematic similarities, uh, and these are closely affiliated with Ambrosiaster in Aquileia, but also Chromatius, Fortunatianus, uh, and Rufinus. As for the fake, it gives this gives me a chance to clear up um, a source of confusion for some who have heard about my work. Okay. 
In 2018, I wrote an article in which I posited that in addition to the two major positions about the fragment state, the second century and the fourth century, that there was one more possibility that had been overlooked, namely that someone in the fourth century or later wrote it to appear as if it had been written in the second century. So for present purposes, fake or forgery. Mm -hmm. Argue for that possibility, one must demonstrate motive, which I explored in that essay. That said, my book does not argue that the fragment is a fake or a forgery. While I still hold that the, the possibility of forgery has been overlooked until I raised it, I now think that the fragment is not a forgery in the traditional sense for a variety of reasons, but mostly because I no longer think that the writer situates themselves in the second century. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, it's perfectly fine to believe that the second century date of a document that claims to be second is uh, believe the second century date of a document that claims to be second century. On the other hand, when the form is completely isolated or unique and the text ignored until Eusebius and much of the content is at least is ignored until the fourth century, we have the right to ask whether the date is true. And that's where my earlier work comes from. Based on that, uh, you make me want to go examine what I've written about uh, your scholarship and make sure that I've represented it as well as uh, as, as you've just said here. And, that, and this might obviate the next question that I have about, uh, you know, kind of the um, motives, I suppose, for uh, pseudepigraphy in, in early Christianity, because um, the theories that we discussed in part one of, of the interview have all tended to um, uh, presuppose that, uh, you know, th this is a writer writing their actual opinions and not posing as somebody else, right? But, um, uh, uh, and this would even include the Armstrong proposal that the fragment uh, was actually the introduction to Victorinus's uh, third century commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. You know, that's uh, an authentic writing, a genuine writing of Victorinus that uh, gets across his opinion. But um, Christians in antiquity were just uh, as occasionally deceptive as their broader Greco-Roman commentaries, um, uh, uh, their uh, contemporaries, that is. Uh, and the interpretive option does exist that the fragment could be a forgery or a fake, seeking to smuggle in uh, the scriptural judgments of a later period into an earlier period. You have dealt with pseudepigraphy throughout your career. Um, I think you kind of have to uh, in this uh, early patristic period to an extent. Um, so can you speak to this phenomenon as we experience it in early Christian writings, how prevalent it was, what possible motives the Christians had to fudge their identity at times? And then um, since you no longer consider it pseudepigraphal, uh, um, that will uh, obviate this question, but uh, what, what considerations did you have when weighing whether pseudepigraphy is a part of the authorial situation behind this uh, Muratorian fragment? And have scholars generally been too credulous about uh, approaching the fragment in ways that they have uh, uh, prior to you? Yeah, so I'll speak briefly only about pseudepigraphy in general. There are experts on this, um, other other people that are experts really uh, more than me on this topic. I do. I would say that I think we have a diminished understanding of forgery in antiquity. And I think our margin of misunderstanding should only increase with the prevalence of AI mm. as writers become increasingly distanced from their writing. Generally speaking, I think that we should keep arm's distance from normative evaluations of repeated materials across writings of known authors, let alone pseudonymous and anonymous writers. Now, as for your second question, it's true that I no longer evaluate the text. I do, like I said, I, I do still hold out the option 
that this text was written later meant to seem like it was written in the second century. And I think we should keep that as a third option, uh, at least for the time being. But part of the reason that uh, I no longer judge it on these grounds is my exploration of that phrase, um, uh, that Latin phrase, in our own times, uh, nu perime temporibus nostris. Because some work I've done, and I'm no, I don't think people agree with me quite yet, but I think that we can problematize exactly the meaning of tempus. So tempus is supposed to mean time, as in chronological time. So in our own times, but it often refers in, I don't really have a good example for how we use it this way, but we do. Sometimes we say in our times and we really kind of mean in our situation or in our circumstances. Mm -hmm. like we mean in the United States in 2023 or 2024 or something like that. So the, um, in Latin, this uh, word tempus was also used in that way. And so if the fragment is saying not in our own times, but in our own circumstances, then that would mean the city of Rome. And then what he's saying is basically we in the West or we in Rome, this is this um, this writing kind of comes from our our um, our circumstances, our which orbit, perhaps. Yeah, our orbit, which, by the way, the shepherd does. Mm -hmm. So that would make um, sense. Uh Anyway, the argument's a little bit more complicated than that, but basically that's uh, that's one of the reasons. And I was going to mention that um, earlier, that now uh, we have a second century hypothesis, we have a fourth century hypothesis, but we have also the hypothesis, not just the pseudepigraphal hypothesis, but the one that says it's not even talking about time. The author's not locating themselves in time, they're lo locating themselves in space. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, yeah. Interesting. <laughs> um, <clears throat> you mentioned that the fragment doesn't quite have people uh, following it or repeating its assertions until perhaps a century and a half later, if if we postulate that it's a second century thing. Um, and like we said earlier, it's a, a sole you know fragment in a manuscript that's buried away and not found until the 18th century. Do you think that the author of the fragment was successful by any metric in like selling his views uh, uh, widely among his contemporaries, considering the general lack of amplification that we see? And this could be related to the shepherd. This could be related to anything. This could be related to the quote unquote canon list that uh, he supplies. How successful was this author at uh, getting his views heard? Uh, well, so I think that um, in some ways unsuccessful. We have nobody talking about the fragment, nobody no, nobody even corroborating much evidence from it. Now, in the Benedictine prologue, and we just discovered a new iteration of it, a new manuscript containing it, and then have just I've just published together with Jeremy Thompson um, an, a sort of sister volume to the Muratorian Fragment volume, which is a new critical edition um, of, of, of the Benedictine prologue. And there are 24 lines in common with the Muratorian Fragment. And those uh, may come take us all the way back to the fifth century. So then you can say, okay, then if the Muratorian fragment is written in the fourth century and it's already being picked up in the fifth century, then it has a measure of success. If it's from the second century, as I mentioned earlier, we have a long period of silence before anyone's repeating its collective views. Now, the individual views in the Muratorian fragment all go back, many of them go back to the second century. You know, have you have opinions about Luke or the opinion about um, not the not the legend about John, but some of the um, thinking about, say, for example, the relationship between uh, the corpse polynum and John and John's letters to seven churches in mm. in Revelation. Some of these ideas clearly are older. And uh, the other thing is, you get resonance in the fourth century with um, the ideas of Chromatius, 
So there are, um, you know, in, in terms of whether it's successful, uh, I guess it, do you, it depends on when you date it. Yeah, I guess, uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now let's talk about your uh, Ambrose theory a little bit, because um, this is a position that probably felt a little precarious. You know, you you said you're playing with lightning, have a, a bullseye on your back and so on. Maybe uh, this uh, plays into it because now scholars can name, oh, well, she thinks it's, you know, Ambrose or Ambrosiaster. But anyway, you name a potential author. Uh, given uh, all of the evidence from the codex that, uh, you know, the fragment is surrounded by, um, you say that this might come from the orbit or environment environment of Ambrosiaster. Now, this is, isn't an actual known person, but sort of a pseudonym that we have in scholarship for someone that sounds Ambrosian or Ambrose-like in his writings. What do we know about this Ambrosiaster, uh, perhaps, and uh, how would you weigh the evidence both in favor of him being our mystery author and uh, not, maybe pros and cons here? Um, I was also particularly interested in the way that you showed Ambrosiaster's voice to be peeking out uh, when he talks about the Shepherd of Hermas, which you call uh, the only section without any ancient parallels, and thus most likely to reveal the voice of this anonymous author. Yeah, okay, so the irony of like finding the author is that I found an author who's anonymous or whatever. So, I mean, I don't really think <laughs> found the author, but it is kind of, um, you know, makes you chuckle, I think, to think that you finally nailed something down and what you've come up with is somebody who is anonymous. <laughs> I, you know, I, I'd like to steer the conversation away from, I'll tell you about Ambrosiaster uh, in a minute, but um, I'd really like to steer the, uh, steer the conversation to Aquileia we see a number of, as I mentioned, uh, similarities with the writings of Acromatius, and those are long proven. Um, and then Fortunationus, which are brand new. Uh, and then also Rufinus. And as I mentioned, Bobbio is not far from there, which is where the, the manuscript was. With Ambrosiaster, um, you know, uh, late fourth uh, century uh, church person, whose identity people have speculated, Dom Morin speculated about his identity three separate times, three different populations changing each time. So we really don't know who the person was, seems to know something about Roman law, um, dialogue with Jerome, uh, with different views, however, um, from Jerome, not really interested in the original languages, more interested in Tertullian than interested in the uh, original uh, Greek language, for example, uh, let alone the, the um, Hebrew language of um, the biblical text. Some of the correspondences are, there are common stylistic elements and motifs between the fragment and, and Ambrosiaster. There's a penchant for legal terminology. There's the coordination of the Pauline and Johanny material. You see it elsewhere. Um, Armstrong is right about that, but, um, but you do see it in Ambrosiaster. An emphasis on the reliability of the fourth gospel, the exclusion of Hebrews from Paul's letters, the a qualified recommendation of the shepherd, um, affinity for revelation and Johannine literature in general, associating miracles with the apostles, linking the earliest church with his own time, the valorization of the Holy Spirit, interest in Alexandria and in Spain, writing from Rome. So there are, and I have a list of about, you know, 10 more things where you find correspondences, but I would immediately want to, to follow up by saying that Ambrosiaster's Latin is in no way as inelegant as the, re, <laughs> as the construction we have in the fragment. Again, the fragment may be copied by a scribe who was reading mm -hmm. um, in a highly abbreviated manuscript. So we, you know, if that's the case, then, then the Latin might've been just fine. Um, elegant say uh, the books 
that are regarded as canonical, the order of the four gospels and the order of the Pauline letters, these are different in the fragment from Ambrosiaster. Hmm. So, and even like the Ambrosiaster's titles for the individual works of the New Testament might sometimes be different um, from the fragment. So there are some things that I think are really compelling and then some, but there are also some real flags. Now, Ambrosiaster was known to rewrite his works. And I, some people think that's why he remained anonymous. So you could never call him out and say, hey, you know, the dice was sort of like me. You know, you people regard, you know, my earlier work as claiming that the fragment is a fake and then turning around and um, not and thinking it's not a fake. You know, things like these maturation of ideas or whatever. I mean, Ambrosiaster is almost famous for. So um, but still what Ambrosiaster would mean by what is written in the fragment is 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 complicated. Interesting. Uh, even before you lay out that theory about Ambrosiaster, you um, say basically that if we dethrone it from being a second century document, that doesn't render the text worthless. Um, it, and you say that it simply directs its historical usefulness toward new aims, those different from an authentic text, perhaps. Um, and this is where, you know, you're kind of discussing the forgery slash fake idea in part of this, but that doesn't necessarily render what you said here uh, um, unworthless for us. Uh, given your evaluation of the fragment, what kind of evidence, if any, does it provide to the canonical process, the, you know, the currency of the shepherd, uh, whenever this document is written, or the other needs of its own authorial environment? So in other words, what are the new aims that the fragment becomes useful to unveil in these early Christian centuries, if, uh, if we place it in the fourth century as you argue i guess i'd say that the um the new work on the benedictine prologue the one that i did with my colleague uh, jeremy thompson demonstrates a greater role for biblical prologues in debates about canonical authority so i think that that is i sort of suggested this earlier but i think that um a closer look at the at these prologues and the Muratorian fragment in conversation with some of these prologues, we, I, we, we, there's not, I don't think, a, not enough attention has been paid to the way that the prologues are talking about the texts and are suggesting the meaning of the texts, even suggesting the order that the texts should be read in. So, for example, this idea that Paul's letters were sequential and that you would start with the easiest and mature to the most complicated one. And the most complicated one is um, is First Thessalonians and also together with Hebrews, because those are exhorting a kind of, um, you know, uh, martyrdom that um, would be an advanced teaching. So these different ways of construing uh, the evidence based on uh, evidence based on the prologues, I think this is where um canon studies now needs to you know come together with this these uh, paratextual studies um for yeah for for progress in our or yeah for progress in thinking about this these questions and maybe see the other ways that uh you know uh, it, scriptural collections are read in uh, in later centuries, perhaps. Uh, very good. Um, you write in a few places that you observe that scholarship on the fragment is kind of at a stalemate, whether we talk about the stalemate of like the late 90s after Hahnemann, where we have a second century and we have a fourth century, 
or you know there's a tendency also for scholars to imagine that there's a consensus on you know everyone believes the way that I do about the fragment you know second century fourth century or whatever and that this uh, that this consensus doesn't actually exist if we were to you know somehow magically able to poll everyone who's considers themselves a specialist on on the fragment I want to ask you to look into a crystal ball for the moment um, do you see this stalemate changing anytime soon I mean perhaps because of your work but um, especially uh, among those who have adopted the most precarious position, which I think is probably the second century position of this uh, of the fragment? Or are we ever forever at the kind of impasse that includes plausible inter interpretive options in the second century, the third century, if we allow Armstrong into the, you know, uh, debate, the fourth century, or even the early fifth century for placing this Muratorian fragment? Are we forever at this uh, stalemate, Claire? Yeah, yeah. Well, first, I'd like to say that I very much wish I had a crystal ball. <laughs> And so if you know anybody that has a reliable one, um, that they should hit me up on social. <laughs> oh, we'll send it your way. Okay, there we go. Um, I do see the tide turning, but slowly and cautiously, mostly based on work around this text, rather than on it directly. A few questions that I think might help us move beyond the, the present impasse are, I've hypothesized that the text was copied from an abbreviated exemplar, which the copyist had difficulty expanding. What kind of exemplar would be in view? So should we think about a biblical paratext, a liturgical text, or something else? Related to this question, we can be confident now that the Benedictine prologue is not so much cor a corroborating witness to the Muratorian fragment as a work that deploys the fragment as a source. Evidence supports the conclusion that it is a coherent tradition and prologue in its own right. In fact, a prologue that may have approached the Muratorian fragment as a prologue. Hmm. What else could the Muratorian fragment be for the Benedictine prologue to collapse four excerpts from it with another prologue, which is the thesis that uh, Jeremy and I have shown? So again, you know, problematizing this question of like uh, the, the canon list and prologue. Next, as I mentioned, significant strains in the Latin tradition situate the Benedictine prologue under the indirect influence of Ambrosiaster. So not just the fragment, but the prologue itself, separate from the fragment. That is, in the, in the parts of the prologue that are not duplicated in the fragment. They're, they're under the indirect influence of Ambrosiaster and also under the cl closer influence of 5th century Pelagianism. So it may be worth exploring the relationship of the Muratorian fragment to that historical situation. Uh, a woman, a scholar named Marie-Pierre Boussier is currently preparing a new complete CCSL uh, edition addressing the complicated transmission history of Ambrosiaster's Quaestiones. Hmm. This new edition, together with other new work on Ambrosiaster's oeuvre, may provide additional comparative material for a fresh evaluation of the Muratorian fragment. And finally, and I mentioned this earlier, building on the unpublished uh, insight by Nils Dahl that, um, that, the, that, that we see Greek strains in the, in the Muratorian fragment, there are Greek strains coming from the Euthalian apparatus. And we see these also in the, uh, the Benedictine prologue. How might these strains be informative about the original language of the fragment? So those are ways I, I would say we might move beyond the impasse. All good questions to consider, and I assume ones that you'll tackle somewhere down the line, perhaps, <laughs> or at least be thinking about along the way. Um, so you mentioned that you dove into the fragment on the basis of Hebrews. 
I dove into the fragment on the basis of the Shepherd of Hermas, and you know that's been kind of an entry point for other people as well. But um, we've only really scratched the surface talking about you know individual books like this and how it it discusses them. As you jumped into the deep end on the Muratorian fragment, is there are there any idiosyncrasies about uh, the fragment or uh, any scriptural opinions expressed in it that you find most curious or interesting or noteworthy that we haven't discussed so far, and why? Yeah, yeah, sure. I like this question. So setting aside the shepherd, I would say the biggest idiosyncrasy is the shepherd. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, if we were to move beyond it, it's really hard to choose because uh, it's really hard to choose just one part of the fragment because the entire piece is an anomaly. Mm -hmm. So while the absence of Hebrews could be explained, what about the absence of James, mm -hmm. first and Peter, and one letter of John? Mm -hmm. Not to mention, what about the inclusion of the apocalypse of Peter? There must be something that we're missing. The, the fragment reflects text. I have wondered whether the fragment originally reflects texts the author thought were only available, only originally written in Greek. Hmm. So you know, it sounds crazy to us, but, you know, in the late fourth century, some people thought Matthew was originally in Hebrew. We have this right. already. Uh, a lot of patristics, in fact, thought that. Right. And well, and and also maybe there were there were um, ideas also related to James, plus mm. he's the brother of Jesus. He originally would have written in. So if you take this out, maybe you can extrapolate that even if we don't have evidence for it, that First and Second Peter and one of the letters of John also were not originally in Greek. I, I don't I don't know if it's defensible, but what I the reason I put this forward for you and for your listeners is this is I think we need to be thinking about possible explanations like this. Mm -hmm. uh, another one is what about the um, the anti-Marcionite rhetoric that's so strong in the fragment? Um, what exactly is that telling us? And um, yeah, I guess I I would just say explanations for these uh, texts that are absent. We need to be it to, to push the boundaries and mm -hmm. try to think beyond. Um, well, I mean, we have them, you know, beyond ways that we have thought about them before. Yeah, to summarize, the Marcion thing could well be related to his um, connection to Rome or you know Italy in the same way that the text seems to itself emanate from uh, Aquileia, as you say, perhaps. But all questions worth pursuing. Yeah, I, I guess I'll mention one more thing anti-Marcionite sentiments were prevalent in the second century, but also <laughs> prevalent in the third and prevalent in the fourth. So that's a little bit of a difficult one. But one of the things I've imagined is if you're in Aquileia and you're actually traveling to the East and coming back to Aquileia as your home base, that's your kind of Rome home base. And maybe you or somebody was putting together a list of texts that they said, you know, these are really texts that are read both in East and in West. And, you know, came up with this, even if, if you don't agree, maybe that, um, that one or the other text should be read like publicly or privately, like we have these qualifications about the apocalypse of, of um, Peter and also about the shepherd of Hermas, but maybe in qualified ways, at least they were, these texts are both East and West, at least from this perspective of this writer. 
at the very least, this sort of brainstorm gets us beyond the idea of canon as being the you know central uh, framework with which, from which to understand the fragment. Now, uh, Claire, thanks so much for all your time today. I want to say with my last sort of question uh, that your book has been long awaited. Uh, it, you know, you've been working on the fragment for quite a while. Uh, for those of us who are intimately familiar with the ins and outs of fragment scholarship, there's even you know more to learn and to dive into here. But uh, we're in 2024 now, that which means that the book's been out for you know going on two years at this point, right? Uh, published in 22. So I'm curious what kind of reception you've uh, heard or received from other scholars so far. Any specific critiques of, of this work that you, uh, I guess, wanted to address or maybe that you're anticipating receiving and just waiting for the reviews to filter in? Yeah, I have to say, I know, I, I'll just be completely honest. I know of two reviews. Uh, one is uh, by Christoph Stenchke in uh, the Journal of Early Christian History. And the other one is by Johannes Butler uh, or Butler um, in Biblische Zeitschrift, and both are, you know, kind of favorable. Actually, hmm. there was also a conference uh, dedicated to the, the study of the Muratorian fragment, um, in featuring my book, Innocence, and in at the University of Strasbourg in December. And I think um, there were a variety of critiques, and also um, some kind of enthusiasm for at least the. Um, the broad scope of the book. So those are those are the three things I that I really know about right now. Basically, I've been um, very happy. I tried to create a book that was a sort of a resource for mm -hmm. um, scholars rather than putting forth uh, really my own perspective. Um, well, without shirking from the responsibility of putting forth my respect, my uh, perspective, but also by giving scholars all of the resources. Like one of the things people have said is they're very grateful that I provide the Greek reconstructions mm -hmm. in um, in the back of the book. So you can actually go and say, okay, how plausible does this look in Greek to me? And you have, you know, those reconstructions there for you. Plus some of the translations say of Muratori's initial comments about the fragment in his publication of the fragment and so on uh, translated. So yeah, I've been, um, I've been happy about it so far. Wonderful. Well, it sounds like it's received its best hearing in Germany so far, but I know, for example, of Lee McDonald, who is uh, very uh, enthusiastic about it, and it's helped him kind of uh, uh, crystallize a late 4th and early 5th century view on the Muratorian fragment. And um, uh, so anyway, uh, long may that continue, and I hope that uh, it uh, receives a hearing in uh, uh, other European uh, venues and in American scholarship as well. Um, we have, I think you're working on another volume for more Zeebeck, and you're also working on this commentary on Barnabas. So do you want to peel back the curtain a little bit and uh, uh, tell us about your ongoing work, what I'll be interviewing you about next. <laughs> yeah, I'm writing on Barnabas. Uh, the The work that I did for Morzebeck currently, that one, the Benedictine prologue has appeared. Hmm. But um, peeling back the curtain on Barnabas, I plan to argue um, with previous scholarship that Barnabas works with an early Christian testimonium or testimonia, and that following that form um, helps us in understanding what actually is going on in this text. So I think that the, the text of Barnabas actually follows um, some unknown source that is in the form of a testimonium. So that's that's a sneak peek at what's happening 
with Barnabas. Well, wonderful. There's so much ink out there about the uh, canonical books of the New Testament that I think there's a lot of fertile ground to uh, to unpack the uh, apostolic fathers, uh, for example, and uh, you, you certainly are a part of that, and we look forward to the Barnabas commentary that you uh, um, uh, have forthcoming with Fortress Press. So, Claire, thanks so much for your time today, for your work on, you know, the messiness of all these early Christian texts and uh, well, their provenance and so on, and thanks again for being our guest on the New Books Network. You're welcome. Thank you. Again, Dr. Rothschild's book is The Muratorian Fragment, a text translation commentary. It's available now from Moore Zebeck in, uh, uh, in Germany. I've been Rob Heaton, uh, your host in New Testament and Early Christian Studies for New Books and Biblical Studies, and I'll be with you again on your next download. But in the meantime, never stop questioning. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs>